Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. I'm the manager here at the Scholar. Um, thank you for joining us this evening as we welcome author and FNM professor Sans Hall to Harrisburg, um, as well as Hippocampus Magazine founder Donna Tallarico. It's a pleasure to host both of them this evening at the Scholar. The month of April is filled with wonderful events, but I'd like to plug our annual celebration on April 28th, that is Independent Bookstore Day. With over 500 participating stores across the country, and it keeps growing and growing each year. I think last year was just over 300, but this year it's over 500 independent bookstores. Um, it's a one-day national party that celebrates the individuality that each bookstore brings to its local community. Um, so for us, we're gonna be having family fun activities, story times with kids, um, book giveaways, special sales. If you've ever done blind date with a book, we're gonna be doing that. Um, <laughs> and to cap it off, we're hosting debut novelists Megan Kenny and Jane Delury for an afternoon conversation on the creative process and the inspiration behind their new novels. So definitely mark your calendars for April 28th and feel free to take a print newsletter to stay top on top of all our events and those are located at the cafe counter. Now I'd like to tell you a little bit more about the two writers we have on stage with us today. Sands Hall is the author of the novel Catching Heaven, a Willa Award finalist for Best Contemporary Fiction and a book of writing essays and exercises, Tools of the Writer's Craft. She teaches at the Iowa Summer Writing Festival, the Community of Writers, Squaw Valley, and is a teaching professor at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, PA. Sands will be interviewed by Donna Tallarico. Donna is an independent writer and marketing consultant by day, and she is also the founder of Hippocampus Magazine and Books, a monthly online journal and micropress dedicated to creative nonfiction. She also runs Hippocampus's annual conference, Hippocamp, which is happening in Lancaster from August 24th through the 26th. To learn more about any of these endeavors, visit hippocampusmagazine.com. And we also have postcards up on that front table just as you walk in um, with dates and uh, need to know information about Hippocamp. So if you're into writing and you want to attend a conference, Donna is one of the best in the business. Um, now about the book. In Flunk Start, Hall delivers a nuanced and captivating memoir on her journey into and out of the Church of Scientology in the late 1970s. She reveals what drew her into the religion, what she found intriguing and useful, and how she came to confront its darker sides. LitHub calls the book a beautifully written memoir, and Kirkus Review says it serves as a significant behind-the-scenes look at this cult-like religion. And I'm going to leave you this, with this one last quote from Hall herself about Scientology, which appeared in the Lancaster newspaper uh, this past week. She says, mostly we just read about the excesses and all the bad things that they do and how awful it is. But what is it that gets people there in the first place? What is so intriguing about it and why might people stay? In Flunk Start, we learn exactly that. So without further ado, let's give a warm Harrisburg welcome to Sands Hall and Donna Tellerico. Thank you so much, Alex, for the introduction. Can you guys hear me okay? All right, great. Um, Sans, I'm so excited to be here and have a conversation with you about your book and about you. And um, so I'm gonna ask some questions about the content of your book, which is about your life, um, also a little bit about your writing process and you as mm -hmm. a person. And just to help guide the audience along for those who haven't yet read the book, I'll give a little context about some of the things that I read in the book and the reasoning behind my question. And um, as we talk, we're also gonna have a treat and have Sans read for us a couple times. So, um, so first of all, one of the things I loved about Flunk Start was the structure of this book. How you start us off in the moments where you begin to doubt Scientology and then you take us back in time and we, we go back and forth through time as you talk about your involvement and revealing bits of your backstory. Um, and then I also like the structure of how you gradually show us how Scientology pulled you in because that's how it happened. It was yes. gradual. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was masterful use of the craft and techniques. So I was hoping you could share a little bit with us about how you chose to structure the book and reveal a little bit about yourself, your family, and the church. Thank you, that's lovely. And thank you, Donna, it's really a pleasure to be here with you as well. I'm really glad that Donna's uh, started with the structure. I worked very hard on that. One of the um, things, of course, you can always tell something simply in narrative, just uh, from beginning to end. But what I knew I wanted to do for the reader was to A, put them in a place pretty immediately that would be intriguing and a bit perhaps mysterious, but also to introduce them 
to me, to my family, to my background, because although this is simply my story about what pulled me into this particular religion, I'm hoping that as we learn, you know, with uh, literature when we're in the fourth grade, it's in the specific that lies the general, hoping that in that very specificity, the reader would find their own uh, echoes and uh, follow along in that way. And indeed, many of the letters that I've re already received have said how much that's inspiring people to look at their own uh, junctures, at you know, what they were doing at these times. And I was tremendously inspired by the writer John McPhee, whose works I just love. And he had written a number of um, essays in The New Yorker about structure. And indeed, reading those essays gave me the, the confidence to actually do what I did in this story, which is to basically divide it into three, a sort of three-act structure. But act one moves back and forth between this sort of very important incident in my time in the church. Uh, which ultimately led to me being able to leave. It was the, it was the thing that kind of um, galvanized that, finally, the urge to finally get out. But also to introduce the reader to my family and to incidents in my background, uh, the way I was brought up with sort of a kind of religion being celebrated, but also it was, as I say in the book, uh, Religion was something that you went to like as a, as a tourist, but you didn't go to church. You know, you were like, you, you, you looked at beautiful crosses and you might even, my mom wore tons of them from Mexico around her, uh, her neck, but was something that you didn't actually necessarily believe in. So I really try to get that sort of thing across to the reader. And then part two kind of catches up to this tremendous accident that happened to my elder brother that was quite devastating to me and indeed I think spun me uh, towards the, the order that the church represented and then part three is the process of, of leaving. So that was, that was the way I tried to set it up and hopefully pull the reader along with me. Well, you definitely pulled me along. Thank <laughs> you, Donna. That's great. Um, so along with that, one of the, um, how you first described Scientology and how you were drawn into it, and as you just said, it helped add order to some of the chaos you mm -hmm. were experiencing in your life, but, but also because of the words. You know, um, words were a really big focus, and, and you had an, an appreciation for understanding the words and their exact definitions. And I think we can all relate to that because so many of our words are just so watered down now. We don't, we use them loosely. Awesome is one that I can think of that kind of has lost its meaning. So you were drawn to that and um, by that and then Scientology started to make sense to you because mm -hmm. of this. And knowing that you're a writer and that's what you ended up being, I could see how Scientology was attractive because of that. So could you talk a little bit about that? Or I also think there's a section in your book that you could also share with us oh, about perfect. those words. I will. Yeah. Um, I think I was very resistant. Uh, I had heard enough about Scientology for years and years and decades and decades, you know, all their excesses and their legal wrangling and oh, mm -hmm. it was a cult and all these things. So when I began to sort of float around the edges of it, uh, which I describe in the book, I was tremendously nervous and tremendously dismissive. Um, but I met a man, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and things unfolded uh, from there in quite some way. I, f I really admired him as a musician. He was a fantastic upright bass player. And jazz was a new music for me, and I just fell in love with jazz, I think, as much as I fell in love with <laughs> what he represented in his person and, and in his spiritual path, in his religion. Um, and so I kind of pushed back and pushed back and pushed back, and finally we went to see this person inside of the church with the wonderful name of ethics officer. <laughs> and the <laughs> ethics officer said that I should take a particular course. And I walked into this course room, and it was dilapidated at the time where I was studying, which was called Celebrity Center Los Angeles, was an old transient hotel that was just beginning, now it's spectacular, but at the time in the 80s, it was just beginning to be refurbished. The ground floor kind of looked pretty good, and after that, it was just terrible. Mm -hmm. So the course room was had you know cobwebs and broken windows, and it was just, I mean, it was lovely, it was fine, but it was pretty dilapidated. But walked in, there were these people sitting at tables studying, and it was just this, wow. It was like coming home in some funny way. And that what really started a, a thing for me, I mean, I still resisted, but 
one of the things right away I learned that L. Ron Hubbard has as part of his technology is what's known as study technology, study tech, we called it. And it talked about ways that you could actually, the ways that you might get bumped off of a course of study and things that made a great deal of sense to this particular person. I really, really was enthralled by it. And one of my favorite things was you had to really understand the words you were reading. And what that meant was basically uh, going to a dictionary a lot. Now, I had kind of been offended by dictionaries when I was a child because <laughs> you kind of got a sent to them when you would say, Mom, how do you spell psychology? And they'd say, go look it up in the dictionary. And there you'd go, S, you know, S-I, <laughs> you know, or, you know, worse things. How could you spell? So I had become um, disaffected by the idea of a dictionary, but this is this uh, short little piece uh, that is from the book. Um, what was so different about that childhood resentment about being forced to use a dictionary? For one thing, and it's huge, I wasn't being sent to the dictionary to find out how to spell a word, which often felt like punishment for not knowing, and led me to pretend I knew things when I didn't. For another, and this was life-changing, Hubbard's precise formula for clearing a word meant that you had to engage with its etymology, its roots. By the age of seven, I'd understood from my little collection of them, I tell you about my little collection of homonyms, mm -hmm. how a homonym is different from a synonym. I'd been taught to spell using phonetics, so I understood that words have parts. But I don't think I knew that the prefixes hom and sin, even though they communicate the difference, existed prior to or beyond their English usage. I certainly didn't know that attached to other suffixes, those prefixes created other words. I found this miraculous. <laughs> yes, I'd been birthed into and educated within the aspirations of a literary family. I held a BA in drama, graduating magna cum laude, words that I understood meant I had majorly good grades, but not the summa best grades. <laughs> and I'd attended an advanced training program at a prestigious acting academy. I even understood from my study of Shakespeare that some of our words come from Saxon roots. Mud, blood, words Macbeth might use, and others were Latinate, prodigal, obsequious, employed by a character like Polonius. I even understood that Acropolis came from the Greek and Abacus from Arabic. But it had never particularly occurred to me that Acro or Polis might communicate something, that they came from somewhere. It was, I suppose, a version of the assumption that milk comes in bottles or butter in rectangles. <laughs> Almost overnight, language became a teeming garden of possibilities, the bouquets one can put together when one understands that cron has to do with time, and philo with love, and bio with life, and hydro with water, cardio with heart, tele with distance, and the suffixes, <laughs> logi with study, graphi with drawing or writing, metri with measuring, sophie, sophia with wisdom. Like one of those children's books whose laminated pages are split in half with the top of one animal above and the bottom of another below, which you can flip separately, creating a hybrid rabbit tiger or cat snake. The simplest <laughs> words pulsed. Telegraph, telegram, telephone, gramophone, hydrometer, pentameter, hydrology, philosophy, sophistry, sophisticated. I took to using a dictionary everywhere. Driving past a sign advertising dermatologist was a galvanizing <laughs> experience. <laughs> Etymology, the study of the true sense of the word. To me, this was the bridge Scientology offered, and as I stepped onto it, I found a glimmering sacred world. Clearing a word became like the best kind of daily Christmas. I'd saved the etymology for last. Examining the root often made the whole word shimmer. Words became almost three-dimensional. I felt smarter, brighter, as if I could actually feel my mind expanding, or as if water were pushing its way through silted-up riverbeds, beginning to run clear. That was great. Thank you so much. And I am sure Midtown does sell dictionaries if, we, if you <laughs> want to grab one before you head home. <laughs> um, you kind of touched on this already, but one of the, I thought one of the most compelling things about your story, especially about your early days, was the role religion played in your house. It was very much a part of your mm -hmm. upbringing, but yet it wasn't mm -hmm. because your parents didn't really believe in organized religion, but they loved it as relics at, with their contributions to the culture. Mm -hmm. And coupled that with the books you enjoyed when you were young, you know, the fantasy books, you always had an interest in religion and with the mythical. Can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Yes, well, it's true what you uh, described there. Um, I was brought up always, I mean, my parents had things like crucifixes that they'd bought in a Mexican market hanging on the wall and um, Buddhas and double dorgies from India and they had all these artifacts of religion everywhere and they, my dad would drop the, you know, onto the record player every Christmas morning, behold the Lamb of God. I mean, we had in the Hallelujah Chorus, we always had all of that stuff playing and it was tremendously important in, in that regard. But it was cultural. It was something to be respected. I was um, eventually, there was a, I understood what, they signed us up, my brother and I, for a, a Bible study class. Um, but it was basically just the New Testament. And of course, at that time, I did not know what that meant. Like, what did it mean to study the Old Testament and not to old New Testament, not to study the old, or what might that mean? You know, I can still say Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the ass really fast because <laughs> if you memorize them, you got a free Bible, um, <laughs> which I didn't read. That part actually wasn't particularly pointed out. <laughs> but my favorite book as a child was an absolutely gorgeous book of Greek myths, and I think that those kind of counted as a sort of religious thing, and they stick with me very, very strongly. Those powerful old stories, and I think that that's part of you know, uh, ultimately how I was able to make my way in a way out of this particular church was with that resilience, so. Okay. Great. Uh, many of the people you encountered in Scientology, especially those you had relationships with and friendships, um, they were quote unquote normal. They were intellectuals and they were artists and how could normal people be involved with something that was cult-like? Um, so, and that's another thing about the book. You do such a great job of balancing the sinister with the welcoming nature of the religion and the people. Can you talk a little bit about the people you met and, and you know, and just yeah. what that was like? Well, there's actually, I'm quite charmed. There's four ex-Scientologists in the room uh, today, and I don't think you could actually look around and go, oh, it's that person, right? Mm -hmm. They're, we, they, ex, now, whatever, just people. But I think because I, there'd been this sort of bugaboo idea that somehow they, you know, they were famous for being able to hold your gaze for a really long time and they'd never blinked and, you know, the, all these mm. stories that were told. But my friends during my time in Scientology were just a wonderful, wonderful group of people. They, we were all, um, you know, we were all waitresses being actors or uh, production managers being uh, painters. I mean, we were all working on our art in some way, shape, or form. Uh, we used the technology to solve problems and, and it supported our friendships. There was always this little thing in my head that was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? But the friends made it tremendously um, okay. It was like if someone is cool, talented, smart, um, intelligent, educated as they are, is doing it, it's okay to do. And it was funny, I think the sad thing was how often I had to talk myself into that. Mm. Um, and talk, and I would, I would like a boomer, I'm like a rubber band, I would, I would move very far out, no, and then boom, back again. And I think that's one of the most fascinating things about what makes it cult-like, which is, I kind of envision this almost little helmet mm -hmm. that you put on and you, you kind of adjust these little knobs on either side of your head and it goes in front of your eyes and makes little noises so you can't actually see clearly and that your ability to think critically and one of the things I really try to get across in the book and uh, thank goodness my early you know as I say correspondence has indicated this is that you you, you meet people in, in my in my life it's like I would never get involved never it would never occur to me it never appealed to me and one of the things I try to say is like, well, you just don't know. Mm -hmm. You have this moment in your life, maybe you're feeling a little open, sad, sorrowful, freaked out, some loss has happened, and maybe into that comes this solution. I think it's a lot what religion period does, that it fills a hole, a gap. Um, and I think that there's an interesting difference too. You could be listening to that Zen guy, but you can talk to me instead. <laughs> there's this interesting <laughs> thing between what religion is and what spirituality is. And I think that, I that effort that's, that religions uh, 
uh, attempt and often accomplish to place a frame around spirituality matters deeply to many, many people. And that's one of the things I think that was, is successful about the Church of Scientology. And then there's, I think, another way to approach your own sense of your own spirituality, which maybe doesn't necessarily need to be inside of a literal structure, as in a temple or a church, or a structure such as a religion. So, but I think once you've been inside of a structure, I have a lot of Catholic friends who, you know, that, that, that uh, oh, on my deathbed, I'll head back, you know, that sense of what if it's all true after all <laughs> sensibility. But um, those are the sort of issues, I think, that cropped up, yeah. Right. And before you were formally introduced to Scientology and before you headed west to L.A., you were doing acting in New York, and you had an encounter with a Scientologist, although you didn't really know it mm -hmm. at the time. Would you be able to share a little bit of that? And I think there's a passage in your book that you could share. I'd love to. Thank great. you. Thank That's you. great. Um, yes, and this comes in the book where, purposefully, where by now... The reader has a sense of um, what I know. One of the things I try to do with the structure is to pull you along into the vocabulary and the ideas so that you eventually are thinking those ideas along with me. You're understanding why I might be reacting in the way I'm reacting. So by the time we get to this particular passage in the book, one of the things that you understand is that... Um, uh, Scientology holds within it, as do many, many um, uh, practices that have to do with the psyche, that there's the idea of an earlier incident underlying the current one that might actually be making you act in the odd way that you might be acting. And it's not, again, like many of the things, I think that one of L. Ron Hubbard's particular geniuses was to codify, that he took what existed already from many, many, many different sources, and he m basically acted as if he'd written it, made it his own in that regard. Mm -hmm. But really what he did was figure out how you could break it down into small little pieces and study it and, it, and, and make more sense out of it. Um, so that was one of the things. So this is, um, this is a little section. When I'm in, uh, in New York City, I'm pursuing my career as an actor, and we are meeting my brother, who is eventually, as I've already said, um, it's not something that you, it's not, I'm not, giving away any plot mm. to that he's eventually going to have a, a really terrible accident. Um, so that's this little section. It would take decades to understand that when my brother fell off a bridge and so massively broke his crown, I not only lost him, I lost myself. I had shaped myself around his example in some ways against it for so long that when he wrecked his way, I wrecked mine. While he drank, smoked, screwed, tried everything, I sat in my ivory tower meditating, writing, often sad, love songs, and drinking herbal tea. Even so, it was his lead I was following as he hacked his way through the forest, and I was grateful for that lantern glinting ahead amid the looming trees. So when he fell and damaged his brain, and I lost my brother, my leader, my model, I plunged into a vertigo that, so it seems now, spun me directly toward the church. The idea that Scientology might offer answers may have been planted the day I attended a seminar given by a famous acting teacher. By this time, winter of 1976, my brother and friends had formed the League of Theater Artists, exploiting Manhattan's passion for raw, original, off, off, off <laughs> Broadway theater. We were going about creating it in storefronts, trucking props and set pieces around the streets and subways of New York. In that group, often spearheading activities, was Kate Kelly, a red-haired, vivacious beauty. I envied Kate's certainty about being an actor with what, with what sometimes seemed like conflicting interests and foci required by songwriting, theater, and writing. It was easy to worry that I was pursuing the wrong path. And Kate was always on the lookout for ways to better her craft. She studied with the legendary teacher, Uta Hagen, and with Kate's encouragement, I auditioned for and was accepted into that class as well. She often invited me to join her for the movement workshops or acting seminars. One morning, she phoned with such an idea. This teacher's famous for finding acting problems, she said. We're too late to sign up to perform a scene, but at least we can watch him work with others while they perform theirs. We met up outside a studio on the west side and pretty much tiptoed into the space. A palpable, almost cathedral-like hush permeated the room. The acting area was an empty square created by rows of chairs. Into this square strode a thick-set man who radiated charisma. 
He made jokes about being a New York Greek, now living in Los Angeles, how glad he was to be back where there is weather. <laughs> Settling into a chair, he said, first scene, two actors moved into the space, took a moment to get situated, and began to speak. The teacher watched for just a few minutes before getting to his feet. Why are you talking like that, he said to the man. Like what, the actor said. As if you have your teeth clenched, why are you doing that? The woman in the scene melted into the audience. The actor began visibly to quiver. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about, he said. The teacher imitated him not unkindly, making his jaw immovable and talking through and over it. As soon as he did that, we saw what he'd observed and we had not. There was a bit of laughter flattened by a look from him. The actor flushed. I don't want, come here. As the teacher held out a hand, a big paw, the room seemed to darken and focus around the acting space. It's as if someone has hold of your jaw. The actor backed up a few steps, shaking his head. I it's just the fall I took when I was skiing a few years ago. I had to have stitches. The teacher studied him. Before that, the room was silent. Tears pooled in the actor's eyes. Again, he shook his head. Before that, the teacher said, just braces. I had to have braces like we all do when I was 12 or so. The teacher reached a hand and took hold of the actor's jaw. In front of us, the actor became a boy, and the boy let him. Before that, the teacher moved the chin in his hand gently from side to side. It's as if someone has hold of you. Does someone have hold of you? The boy began to cry, also to nod. The teacher released his jaw and waited. Just like you did the actor finally said. He was weeping. She'd hold my chin and force the spoon in and I'd try to keep my mouth shut because I didn't want it. The teacher studied him. Let's be sure to talk later, he said. Next scene? The acting problems unearthed in the next few scenes weren't as dramatic, but we could see they were holding the actors back in some significant way. That was amazing, Kate and I raved as we joined the group bumping its way out of the room. Someone next to us said, you do know that guy's a Scientologist. No, we said. That stuff he was doing, that's Scientology. Horrified, Kate and I looked at each other. As one, we shrugged. It was still amazing, and it was. He seemed to have located a buried memory that not only appeared to be holding the actor back from a successful career, but that might be affecting his whole life. I don't remember being aware of this teacher's name, Milton Katselis, but less than two years later, after I'd fled Manhattan for Los Angeles, I almost immediately found my way, at the time it seemed like mere coincidence, to his acting class. Thank you for sharing that. That's, Thank you. That's great. Um, you mentioned your brother, Oak, or Tad. Mm -hmm. He has a few different names in the book. Um, this book is not just your story. Mm -hmm. You know, you interweave your family's story into it, and um, your brother was your guiding light, and then he had had an accident. And it's it's very clear that you c couldn't have written this book without it including his story no. as well. Mm -hmm. Can and without giving too much away, can you talk a little bit about your brother and why he's crucial to this story? And and I think you might have a small section about him as well. He's so good, Donna. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Uh, I think it's indicative that the first draft of this book was about 1,500 pages long, <laughs> and it was called, I'm joking a little, um, and it was called Pilgrimage, My Trek Through Scientology and the Tale of a Brother. And even as I typed that title out onto a title page, I thought, that's two books. <laughs> and indeed, I think that was the early reaction. And um, so I paired and paired and paired and paired. I think the first draft was very much a, he died in the process of my writing the book and I, um, it was a surprise that came out of the clear blue sky. And so it was like very much an homage to who he was and this theater company built and who he was before his accident and who he was after his accident. So I really had to write all of that. And mm -hmm. then up subsequent drafts, um, he became I think the part of, and I could hear him, I really could hear him saying, it's all right, Sam, don't worry about it, it's fine, because I had to weep, I had to weep, I'm cutting you out of this scene. Mm. <laughs> um, he was, uh, 
he was just an uh, like on one level a very typical um, you know first son only son older brother very bold as I've already said you know he if there w if it was there to be smoked he smoked it if it was there to be you know consumed he consumed it if he was he was very very active sexually he just did a and I did and you know it made me really realize how much we form ourselves in relationship to our siblings you know because once his accident happened it was like as if I became this whole different person. I was sleeping with married men, I was snorting cocaine, I was you know, sli slipping bits of vodka into drinks that I, you know, I mean, it w I was just this whole other persona emerged that was so interesting. One of the reasons Scientology was so attractive was like, who's this person <laughs> that's just suddenly behaving in these, really, uh, what I found, you know, I mean, it was like being outside myself watching this behavior. Whoa, what are you up to? It's fascinating. But my brother had a way of pushing the envelope all the time. And I depict one of those in the book. It's a very short um, section. But um, it's early, early on. My parents, my amazing parents, um, who I think take a bit of a beating in the book, but it's ultimately a very loving portrait of them, mm -hmm. um, uh, Amongst the astonishing things they did was when my brother was 13, I was 11, my s middle sister was eight, and my youngest sister was one, they took us for 18 months to Europe, and we camped. Mm. I mean, I think it's just enough to take one person. I mean, yourself's <laughs> enough, much less like another, but four kids. So uh, this I, I detail a bit of that journey, because I do think it's just a, a very important part of who we became as a family, really. Sort of. I kind of refer to the family <coughs> as a bit as a cult itself, and I think this is part of what made that so. During those months in Europe, <coughs> Mother took hundreds of photographs, but there's one moment she didn't capture. Dad has decided that the tents need washing. We're camped by a lake, and he instructs Tad and me to pull them out to a distant float. The idea is that the movement through the water there and back, after which Dad will spread them on the grass to dry, will clean them. Tad and I shove and push and drag the first of the tents out to the float. It's the tent my parents sleep in, made of yellow canvas. As I hang from the platform, admiring the tent's strange goldenness, Tad hoists himself up onto the float and with a wild banshee cry, launches himself into the middle of the vast yardage spread out on the surface of the water. The canvas billows up around him, taking him in like a kind of shroud. He is going to drown. I see it as clearly as I see the sun in the sky. There's no way he's going to be able to fight his way out of that tangle of heavy golden cloth. But he's kept his arms outstretched as he jumped, and the fist of one stays above all those soggy layers. With that one hand, he somehow, it seems to take hours, I don't know what to do to help, bats his way out of the swirling fabric. Looking terrified, he pulls his chest onto the float and hangs there, gasping. You could have died, I say uselessly. I know. Panting, he scrabbles all the way onto the float and flops over on his back. Mom and Dad have no idea what's happened. They're sitting at a little table on the shore, having wine. At their feet, Tracy and Brett splash in shallow water. My brother's eyes are closed. His chest heaves. Droplets scattered across his skin glitter in the sun. His hair is a mass of Dionysian curls. He seems to me absolutely immortal. But he wasn't. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. And I think I might have one more question before the audience, um, before the audience Q&A. So I know you probably have questions. And if you don't, think of one. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so as the book went on, you know, as you, it's in three, uh, three parts. So in you know, toward the end, only then do we start to hear about some of the more startling aspects of Scientology. And again, I really love how you wrote this book because we're discovering this along with you. And I think your technique there really, you know, helped with the tension Thank of this novel. Thank You're you. welcome. Uh, or memoir. I don't know why I just said novel. Um, so, but what's unique here is, you know, you, um, you had to leave. You eventually did. But when you left, you kind of found all of this out yourself. The internet wasn't there yet like it is today. You know, so what do you have to say about, you know, I mean, and most of what you discovered was after when you started reading the blogs of other people that left. 
What role do you think technology has played in getting more people to understand the reasons you left and maybe even why you told your story now more recently? Well, I like to believe, and I, I actually do believe, that if the internet had been extant in my time in the church, that I would have left much, much earlier. <laughs> and you're, you're nodding as well, yeah. It's like so much information is available that I think it was very easy to hide from oneself when all it took was to walk past a book on a bookshelf or to not buy a newspaper, or to change the channel on the television set. It was much easier, but um, especially since um, I'm cursed, blessed, <laughs> with curiosity, and I think one of the great dilemmas ultimately with Scientology is, and it ultimately was the untenable, ultimately the untenable thing was that you could not take your curiosity where it might just take you. And that there were things that you had to not go look at that, that would lead to trouble because you might read something that would cause you to doubt mm. and then you would be <coughs> in trouble. That was a big thing. You'd be in trouble for doubting and you would have to write up your transgressions. What led you to doubt? Mm. It was this endless, horrible loop of stuff that's just, I think, so incredibly uh, destructive to one's psyche, that sense of always calling yourself on the carpet. I think a lot of women in this day and age have a <laughs> tendency to do that anyway. Mm. Maybe people do, but this was just, it was a constant running thing yeah. about what did you do wrong, what did you do wrong. But there's a possible thing, I think, if the internet had been more available, and I mean, I just, I adore Google. I <laughs> just adore Google. Sometimes I just take a look on an average day of what I looked up, and I just love the range <laughs> of what's possible to examine, you know. I pay money to Wikipedia. I'm very grateful to them. You know, it's just uh, <laughs> in addition to lots of newspapers. But I really am very grateful for that quick check. What was that really about that Greek god that I think I know so well? I'm about to go teach about. You know, it's like that's really good <laughs> to be able to check, right? Um, so I think that that would have made a huge difference. And when I finally left, um, I didn't. The internet. Actually, one of the things that was most galvanizing was Googling myself and finding myself outed on a website mm. that basically reported all the courses I had taken in the church. Mm. And I was horrified by that. And then realized that the purpose of the website was to actually point out how many people had been in the church who had left. That was actually ultimately its goal. And that was a real, that was mind opening. But now I remember that day almost going and looking at blogs and things that were online, you know, all kinds of things were posted. and. But I remember just shutting my computer saying mm. I could not. It took years. It took my good friend Sonny, who plays a role in the book, who stayed in the church much, much longer than I did and eventually left. And she just went into those blogs and she sent me link after link after link after link. And at first I was just deleting them. But eventually, as I was mm. kind of wanted to get the first draft down and have it be my memory. And then once I felt that I'd kind of done my own job with that, I began to read, and that's when I began to realize one, I'd finally left, how it was connected to when Miscavige took mm. over the church. Yeah. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to realize way after the fact, years, decades yeah. after the fact, that that was actually the case. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's the heartbroken part of, I think, people who still have quite a, a love affair with Scientology but can no longer can be in it is because of all the terrible... I mean, it was already a very scary religion, let me yeah. be clear, but that he kind of ratcheted up into some very scary places, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. I enjoyed our conversation, and uh, I'll turn it back over to Alex for the audience part. Yeah, okay. Um, we're going to have an audience Q&A. If you just want to raise your hand, um, I will come to you. So who's going to ask the first question? Yes. What year did you start with Scientology? What year did you leave? And when did you first begin to write the book? Mm. Because I feel, I feel like we're kind of at the end of the story right now. I, I want to know a little more about the beginning. Yes, well, I was in um, Scientology. Uh, probably I married a gentleman, my, my, the man, J Jamie, uh, who basically introduced me to the church in 81, but by 82 I was in the church, and then I gradually did courses. I became a course supervisor at a mission in Beverly Hills, what they call a mission, it's a, um, a feeder to the larger org organizations, 
And um, I ultimately, uh, it's kind of squishy, but I ultimately left in 87, although there was still some dancing that took place. So it was really three years before I felt I was through the church, which is why I say my decade, because there was that tremendous pullback. Yeah, so that was it. Any other questions? Yes. Hi. Um, you, you just mentioned it briefly a few times in the book. Um, what do you think the average person would spend? It seems like $100,000 is... Do you know, I, r I do not know the answer to that. I ran around the bottom of the bridge for a very long time. I well, for the time I was there, I enjoyed what I was learning down there and I thought what I heard about what's known as the, the upper levels, uh, without going into the explanation of what that means, it sounded a little uh, odd to me. And so I just kind of think I, I, I don't think I, no, I, I don't know, I think I purposely, but I just kind of, I think I danced away from it because it just seemed kind of the little bit of, you know, you weren't supposed to talk about it if you were on the upper levels, but I just sort of have a sense of it. And I just, so, I, and I had a, my, the man that I didn't marry, but a man that is known as Sky in the book, who is a lovely, lovely human being, and I miss him still. I mean, that was really a, a relationship that had to bust up over a religion, and I thought that was a literary trope, but it isn't. We just couldn't be together. And, um, and he very much did what was called, especially in those days, he, he trained up. So you could, it was, I, I think it was much cheaper if you co-audited your way up yeah. the bridge. So I'm sure those numbers exist and there may be some people in the room that could actually say them, but I never have looked into that because it all just appalls me. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd read Going Clear and he talks more about he that. He talks but a but lot one, about it. One Excellent quick follow-up. Um, th them being deemed a church by the IRS, and I know the fought battle of that through the decades, not that I hold out hope with a dysfunctional Washington. But right, I agree. Do, do you ever think, because they're talking about billions in lost revenue, do you, do you ever think that uh, that might be a fight down the road? Or it's a prayer of mine because I think it's just so awful. Uh, there's, I really want to say, if you're interested in this, there's an extraordinary book called The Unbreakable Miss Lovely uh, by Tony Ortega, who also runs a terrific, uh, his, he's made his business to write about Scientology and point out wrongdoing. This is such a gripping book about the FBI, what they did with the FBI and other aspects of, of that really scary parts of the church. I read that book and almost pulled the plug on this when I was so scared at that point, so terrified. Um, I would actually really like the reason for the church to be busted open is for what they do to children. That's the thing that most uh, offends. And I think people who've watched Leo Remini's stuff know enough about that. But anyway, that's my feeling there. Yes, in the front row, coming. Do you find yourself thinking um, like a Scientologist, like you have to catch yourself, and you're like, wait a minute, that was, like you just have to catch yourself. Wait that a minute, that's Scientology. That is such a really good question. For so many years, it was a little bit like, don't think about chocolate, or you know, what I mean, whatever. It was like, don't, don't think, don't. Um, but I think one of the beautiful things, and I'm very grateful to the process of writing this book, uh, is that the word that's on the title, reclaiming, is really a huge part of that, which is to not, uh, I'll, I'll sort of briefly say that I feel very fortunate at Franklin and Marshall College to teach a myth and fairy tale course. Mm. Uh, in fact, my chair at the time, when I decided, she said, you could teach a course what you'd like to teach. I said, well, I'd like to teach a myth and fairy tale course. She said, <laughs> why don't you do that? So I'm very uh, always grateful to Judith for that. Um, because I'm very much an autodidact, I, I, I just teach myself. I, that's, that's that curiosity thing. So I can go with that course where it appeals to me to go and deepen and widen in places I want. And not that this is particularly unusual, but I really studied deeply, of course, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey attached to this, of course. And I would speak fervently to my students. Just I would speak like uh, I was just trying to persuade them to a religion about this, which is 
If you can go into a given endeavor and understand that there may be times in the darkness, but if you understand that time in the darkness, you can learn something from that time in the darkness, and that you can actually look at that time in the darkness with a particular view, not that it's just despair, but maybe there's something here that I can learn from this and bring back to, my, to the original world, that if I can give you one thing in this course, I say to them, this is the thing I want to give you. And in my head would be going, Sans, you could apply this to your time in Scientology. But <laughs> no, no, that was just an error. <laughs> and then I would teach some more and speak some more and we'd be having individu individual conferences in my office and I'm like, yes, it's dark, but if you just hold on to, you know, you can probably see right now you're learning from something, right? Yes, you see, there it is. And Sans, you know, you could apply this. And finally, of course, just living with those fantastic ideas made me begin to inspect my own. And so that's when I went back and really managed to say, I have been trying to ignore and push away these things that I actually find are useful. And I try to detail those for the readers, to say what it is that I actually, you know, here are the things I think are terrible and scary, and I don't wish them on anyone, but here are these, these, are these things that I really appreciate. Again, I don't think that L. Ron Hubbard in any way, shape, or form invented them, but he codified them, and it was through that particular religion that I learned them. Mm -hmm. So I try to actually make that clear to the reader so that it isn't such a slash and burn tale around Scientology. I, I really point out as the, the things that I think are horrible and problematic, but I also try to say to the reader, all is not lost when you've made an error. And that was a huge thing for me. T I mean, I really just tried to pretend those years didn't happen to me. And now it's been one of the things I love so much is finally get up the nerve to say to somebody, you know, this now I've been able to get it out of my mouth that I, 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 I was once a Scientologist, which is mortifying, you know. <laughs> but I can say it more and more easily. And what I would love is I would say something about, I mean, I sort of felt I made this big mistake spending these years in the church. And people would like, bat that sentence away and go, I know, because I went to Baltimore and I spent four years with this asshole, you know, <laughs> or, oh, I know what you mean, because I had this horrible time with this opioid and it was just unbelievable and I spent, I must have been seven years addicted to this thing. And I realized, oh, I'm not the only one who feels they've got an error in their life, you know. So one of the gifts I really want, it's, I, it's my daily prayer actually, is the book allows people to examine their own time in the woods, in the underworld, in the wherever it was, and to sort of see if you can kind of back up and take another look, maybe there's something to reclaim and actually find that's useful about that time. So thank you for that question, really useful question. Have you been threatened by Scientology or subjected to fair game? Um, this is from one of our ex-Scientologists in the room, so that horrible phrase, fair game, is exactly what it sounds like. It's, a it's an actual policy letter that says if you speak out against the church, you are they can do anything to you. So. Uh, <coughs> I received a problematic email uh, when I friends discovered I was, these friends that I, had been disconnected from but then reconnected to because we found if we just stayed off the subject of Scientology, we could be kind of friends. Mm -hmm. But then when they found this out and they wrote me and they, you know, they basically said, uh, we're gonna have to cut the line. I said, well, it's, it'll be you cutting the line, it won't be me, but I understand why you have to being good Scientology. I mean, I understand. And I have been, um, at that point I almost pulled the plug and I had just finished reading that Unbreakable Miss Lovely, which he's, uh, Tony Ortega <coughs> is um, just a marvelous writer and he does a great book in that great job in that book. Um, and I was very nervous about it, but then I was like, you know, Sans, be a grown-up and take your hits. If they're going to come, they're going to come and deal with it if they, if they, you know. And I read just awful things that they do. I mean, awful, awful things, especially with internet and colleagues and friends. And, um, and I, so I've been, you know, the loins are girded, you know. Um, many people have pointed out to me that because it's ultimately a very fair book, that I really try to talk about what's good about the church, that they'd be insane to come after me because it would only just say what is bad. Mm -hmm. So I'm holding that tenderly, hoping that's true. Um, 
I do try to be very, very fair in the book and say, well, here's what I got from it, and here's what I think is awful, and that's my effort. So that's, that's my answer to that. Yeah, thank you. Oh, you talked about oh, that actress and stuff she wrote. Well, the little bit I read, I just got the impression it's a lot of hypocrisy. Like, there's, like you said, there's a lot. Is that basically what the problem is? You mean you're talking about Leah Remini's show? R the actress. Yeah, the actress I who's done the terrific series yeah, like of sort of exposing the... Because you said you wanted to, what they do to children. Right. Like, is it like really bizarre stuff outside of what... Not more than what Miss Remini has pointed out in her series. It's just that children are considered spirits in grown spirits in small bodies, and I think by the age of eight, they are able to make decisions like sign their life away for a billion years, and then they are basically a sort of uh, workforce. Uh, that's the that's the, but you can look it up. There's tons written about it, but um, I don't know. I think the hypocritical aspect of it may have gotten worse. I do feel that. It's I I in a way, I can't recognize, in a way, some of the stuff that I once held, that I thought was actually positive anymore, because it seems to be so twisted and distorted. Um, but I would say that, no, one of the reasons people s get involved and stay involved is because there seems to be a lot of truth there rather than hypocrisy. It's just that, as we are learning in our current administration, what people say and what they do can sometimes be, there's just can be a huge, huge split between those things. And I think that is really a big problem. Yeah. Questions? Yes. Since you have a background in the stage, did you ever feel like you were acting like a Scientologist rather than being one? And to bring that question full circle, how did you find Sands again? Mm. I don't know if I ever felt I was acting, um, although, of course, I think what that question points to is how we all construct our realities, you know. Um, I certainly pretended uh, some sort of, uh, and I, I talk about that in the book, about the effort to hold some sort of uh, belief system in place when I could feel it rocking really badly. You know, those were those were very tough things. Um, and so I pretended, um, definitely. And perhaps there's a very fine line there between pretense and acting. Um, but I think quite blessedly w was getting um, accepted to the Iowa Writers Workshop, and um, having to and getting to be on that beautiful campus with a river coursing through it and brick buildings and, you know, I remember just staring at a cornerstone saying, you know, established 1847 or whenever it was, and just that people make buildings to education in that way just moves me so deeply. And something about that began to really stir things very deeply inside of me and then, of course, trying to write fiction and uh, grapple with ideas it just became clearer and clearer and clearer, this idea of I can't follow my curiosity where it automatically wants to take me. I can't follow, I can't go be, in, enact the kind of people. That, and my acting career during Scientology just hit the absolute skids. I went into uh, uh, audition once, a really nice uh, movie of the week, and I had a really nice resume. I had worked at some really prestigious places, you know, the Colorado Shakespeare Festival, our Oregon Shakespeare Festival, all kinds of things on television and in New York City. And this woman looks at my resume and she says, what happened to you? Did you have a baby? <laughs> <laughs> so it was like five years of absence, right? Mm. And, um, and that was horrible. So it just crashed and burned, that career. And so I think uh, finding my way to writing and, and, of course, the love of words, which I had really, and that's one of the big things I say, I really discovered my love of words and how I could really, really climb inside of their etymology, in, in, you know, the roots of them and their little, I would say their little etymological souls that are in <laughs> there, you know, uh, was so delicious. So that's, I think it was the, the writer's workshop and, and, and thereafter that just made that, made the split finally uh, happen. Yeah, thank you. Yes, in front. 
Yeah, the one question I do have is that um, have you at some point during this whole process researched any other like groups to notice like the similarities between Scientology? Um, and the only reason why I'm asking is because I was born into the Jehovah's Witness religion really? and I'm, I'm out now, um, luckily. Congratulations, and yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I noticed that some of the words that you use are extremely similar to what, you know, you know that's how I know her too, but um, like you say, uh, disconnect and then connecting to people again with Jehovah's Witnesses, it's uh, disfellowshipped. Reinstatement. So I was just curious to see if you've done any research. Not in any sort of really systematic way, but enough to know uh, things that fascinate me are that you have to stay inside and operate in certain ways and behave by certain codification. You know that that's absolutely that once you you move beyond that or act beyond that that code, you are disbarred or you are you know you are outside the you're then that wonderful phrase beyond the pale, which is really you're, you're outside the fence, you can't get back in. And also, the, for me, very, very importantly, again, to do with words, is how there is a shared vocabulary. That you all, you share a vocabulary that's yours and it feels very delicious because you can talk to each other and that they, those people around you maybe don't quite understand. And that that seems like a very precious thing when you're inside the, the particular religion or gathering or you know, I mean, I was in the dentist's office today, and they have a nomenclature. You know, they're talking <laughs> over my head about this, that, and the other thing. I'm like, oh, whatever you're doing, <laughs> you know. So everybody's got musicians have one, you know, teachers have them. We all have that vocabulary. It's very precious, but it's another when it actually binds you together in a way that really purposefully keeps others out. And I think that's a great similarity to the, yeah. to the religions, yeah. We have time for just one more question. I'll go to the middle here. within the context of this presentation. Uh, my background, I have an aunt who left Dianetics in 1953 wow. for the same reasons that people leave today. No kidding, wow. Uh, I, my time in Scientology and the Sea Organization was 1972 to 1982, and I, I really disassociated from it, but I find it fascinating to hear the stories of people who went in after. I was not involved in the David Miscavige time other than they knew him when he was just a little punk. Wow, amazing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I talked to L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, I knew his son well. There, there's a couple of aspects that are kind of important. Uh, the church, and we call it a church, continues to promote a biography for Hubbard that they know is totally false. Yes. He always maintained, and conflicting biographies, but Throughout all the years, he maintained a, a totally false yes. uh, biography. Uh, I see people who have n are no longer connected with the church, but are still practicing in some way, and they s tend to blow off the fact that his biography was a total lie. Mm -hmm. And it's well documented that it's a, a total lie. So that is one aspect that really bound things together. Mm -hmm. um, I also have family that left staff about the same time I did, but because they stayed in and we didn't, we really haven't talked much in 30 years. Mm -hmm. uh, so w the way that Leah portrays what it does to families is accurate, but of course it's going to be different for each and every family. Mm -hmm. uh, many mothers can no longer talk to their children. All of that is true. Uh, we left at a time shortly after my son was born and there was no real provision that was acceptable for raising a child. And I'll have to be honest, and we've talked about it since we wanted to have a child, and we've been married 40 years, but we've never really considered what it would be like to raise a child mm -hmm. in the Sioux organization. Mm -hmm. And you think back, it's like, what were we thinking? And frankly, we were thinking in the present. We weren't thinking about what mm -hmm. happens when he's five, what happens when he's seven. I have a very good friend who brought her son in when he was about eight, and he bounced around, and it was just horrible. He's a, 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 an alcoholic mm -hmm. as an adult, mm -hmm. um, no education, yeah. everything that, that's said. That's why there's wonderful, wonderful uh, websites now, xcorgkids.com, and I too, I think one of the reasons I ultimately had to sidle away was with Tom was that, you know, I, I was getting into that age of could I have 
this would be the tail end of having a child in any kind of you know healthy way really and uh, I couldn't imagine it either I mean that was the thing it was just like it would go like and then you just <laughs> kind of turn your head and go, you know live in the present again and but it was definitely one of the many sort of straws that allowed me to I think finally leave was exactly that you describe it very very well yeah and one of the things that been if you're interested uh, about Tony Ortega's blog which is called underground bunker is not only does he write very intriguingly well every day, you know, five days a week about something very interesting, he keeps a steady calendar of how many days it's been since so-and-so has seen so-and-so. So, -and -so. Hmm. so it'll, it'll just tally, you know, 3,463 days since so-and-so seen their daughter. You know, wow. uh, yeah, 463 days since so-and-so seen their brother. And they just, it just tallies every day and it's tremendously wow a powerful tool, just every day that you, you, you kind of go in there, you see, wow, they still haven't seen members of their family. And that's, I think, again, one of the most damning and horrible things. So. Let's give a round of applause for Sands and Donna. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you all so much for coming. It means a lot to me that so many of you are here. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're going to have a book signing uh, right at this table over here. Books are available for purchase up at the cafe counter. If you still had a question, um, feel free to get in line and you can uh, talk to Sans in line. Thanks again for coming, everyone. Have a